Wait, there's a brand new music video and it's animated, but it's for a song that's been around for over 50 years and is beloved and the singer has been dead for decades. Why? We explain what's going on with holiday music today on. The following program is brought to you in living color. As early as 1923, David Sarnoff recognized the possibility of developing a television system. This is the dimension of imagination. Oh yeah, now I remember. It's Inside the Box, the TV history podcast. Welcome or welcome back. I'm Jonathan Bullinger. If you're still watching YouTube these days for music video, you might have come across a lot of new animated videos for old holiday favorites that, well, have been around a really, really long time, practically your entire life. Now, I find this type of marketing fascinating, and I want to discuss it with you about what this all means. And I'll do that by first setting the table, if you will, about the topic. And surprise, surprise, guess who's back with us? Steve Voorhees. That's right. Steve and I are going to open up the conversation after I go through a little bit of history. Okay? Malakilikimaka is a thing to say on a bright Hawaiian Christmas day. That's the island greeting that we send to you from the land. All right. Here we go with that history. First off, a lot of my interest in this topic comes from my particular age and perspective. Simply that I grew up during a time when MTV, well, back when they showed videos at least, was important and fresh and new. A lot of how I'm viewing music video during this episode is filtered through that perspective. Now, obviously, if you're older or you're younger than me, your relationship to music video is going to be a little bit different, and they may seem more or less significant to you. First, music video has always been a tool to promote and sell music for as long as the technology has existed, and consistently since the 1980s, with, you know, previous inconsistent efforts during the 1960s and 1970s. Here, I borrow from a scholar of music video, Gunnar Strom, who believes that some videos act, quote, as portraits of popular artists, many of them stand out as small documentaries, end quote. Yet, whether they're capturing a particular artist in a particular moment, or if it is just representing a song recording in an artistic or abstract way, the video is nonetheless, quote, a fantasy world selling an experience about popular artists to an audience who are ready to spend its money on popular culture, end quote. While traditionally music videos were used to promote new music from current or up-and-coming artists, cases do exist for older artists or artists who had passed away suddenly. These earlier video attempts were made utilizing old or alternative footage to create videos for songs that had never previously existed on video. For example, after his death in 1980, a video utilizing old footage was assembled to promote John Lennon, who, you know, was born in 1940 and, as I mentioned, died in 1980, his posthumous single, Nobody Told Me, from 1984. 
A similar technique, this time incorporating old and new footage with the surviving band members, was used for the Beatles' anthology singles from 1995 and 1996. Another example, singer Natalie Cole, who unfortunately passed away in 2015, back when she successfully duetted with her then late father, Nat King Cole, who had passed away back in 1965, both musically and visually, in the video for her 1991 smash hit recording, Unforgettable. That's why, darling, it's incredible. Hell, even Disney, which at the time called itself uh, this effort DTV, and Hanna-Barbera called its effort HBTV, they both created music videos for old and contemporary songs using existing animation from their respective vaults in order to run a sort of MTV-style programming block back in the 1980s. So, while I certainly associate music videos with new music, there is somewhat of a precedent to use them to sell either old music or new music from artists who are no longer alive. So, I just simply mentioned that so as to be fair to the videos that Steve and I will be discussing soon. Second, particularly since the 1980s, the music video has become synonymous with the song, or it at least becomes an important visual marker for the performer's style or public image. So, to state it simply, music videos can be, well, (laughs) incredibly important. Yes, I'm somewhat biased here due to having been practically quote-unquote raised by MTV, but certain videos do stand the test of time. To state the obvious, in the video age, the visuals are nearly as important as the music itself. And within the medium of music video, the two intermesh to create a singular product that is greater than the sum of its parts. Or to put it another way, sometimes we actually do listen with our eyes. We're not arguing that a new video can dismantle an individual's long-held association between a song and the memory of a significant life event. However, if visuals and music work together within a music video format, then there is a potential for recontextualization or reinterpretation. Admittedly, this probability is higher for those listeners with a weaker connection to the song in question. Before discussing that potential for recontextualization, let's first cover a brief history of music video as a form. Again, if I'm being honest here, a good amount of this history and perspective on this history is being directly informed by the work of music video scholar Gunnar Strom and his work from 2007. The combination of music and animation can be traced back to the late 1920s and 1930s in both the U.S. and Germany. This included things like Disney's Silly Symphonies, Warner Brothers' Merry Melodies and Looney Tunes, and the Fleischer Studios' Betty Boop videos for both Cab Calloway and Louis Armstrong. While over in Germany, popular jazz music was illustrated in the Studi films by Oscar Fischinger. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly. Now, later on, 
Moving ahead about 30 to 40 years, in the 1960s, popular artists, so think like, again, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the Doors, etc., they did make promotional music videos. Yet, each did so for their own unique reasons and inspirations, seeing them as variations on different short film types. This decade, the 1960s, also saw animated music TV shows, The Beatles, from 1965 to 1969, The Archies, 1968 to 1977, and The Beatles' feature film, Yellow Submarine, also from 1968. Hell, even the second season, from 1970, of the Hanna-Barbera cartoon, Scooby-Doo, Where Are You?, had pop song musical sequences performed by Austin Roberts. A handful of other animated music videos continued throughout the 1970s until the decade closed out with what is now widely considered the first animated music video, Annabelle Jankel's and Rocky Morton's video for artist Elvis Costello's song, Accidents Will Happen from 1979. When MTV first hit on August 1st, 1981, record companies and performers quickly realized the video needed to sell the artist by showing the artist, not abstracting them with illustration. Prior to the 1980s, radio was the primary way to promote music. But then after August 1st, MTV became the dominant marketing tool. So at first, Live action was preferred over animation. However, once budgets expanded for prestigious music videos that increasingly used expensive special effects and longer production times, this really opened the door for more use of animation. Strom believes that the animated music video didn't truly arrive until the mid-1980s, calling it the quote-unquote golden age. This age, of course, included... Uh, releases such as AHA's Take On Me from 1985, Dire Straits's Money For Nothing and Brothers In Arms, also from 1985, and former Genesis frontman Peter Gabriel's Sledgehammer from 1986, which together established the animated music video as a popular and engaging concept for artists. A mixture of animated and non-animated videos continued to be produced from the mid-1980s through the late 1990s. However, the power and prestige MTV had over popular music, at least in the U.S., waned slightly as the channel began to shift its focus from solely playing rotating promotional music videos to increasing numbers of reality-based programs. Yet, it was also before YouTube became the newer, nearly ubiquitous dumping ground it is today for both old, already paid for, <laughs> promotional videos from record companies and new content from a variety of up-and-coming musical performers. Simply put, record companies were less willing to advance large budgets to artists in order to create the type of conceptual video that became en vogue during MTV's 80s heyday. If MTV wasn't playing them, 
And YouTube wasn't yet the established 800-pound gorilla, if you will, that it is today. As such, during this time, fans saw savvy artists, such as uh, one among many, Weird Al Yankovic, pivot back in 2006 to animated music videos due to their relative lower costs. And then about a decade later, we also saw this strategy used to promote what we call quote unquote catalog or legacy artists such as the Monkees when they released a new 2016 album titled Good Times that Rhino, the record company, had set themselves the task of creating. They wanted to do an entirely new album, even though key band member Davy Jones had passed away in 2012 or four years prior. New music was written and produced in collaboration with the remaining band members, and two new animated music videos were created for the singles She Makes Me Laugh and You Bring the Summer. And those videos were released in 2016 and directed by Jonathan Nesmith and Susan Holloway. Okay, so I know that was a lot of history, and some of you have already stopped listening to the podcast, but we're finally getting to the main show here, okay? So all of this history leads us up to our current discussion. And this is what interests me. Now, I apologize, it's going to be a bit of a laundry list, but I want to make sure I'm as thorough as I can be here. So I'll try to do this not as robotic as I absolutely uh, uh, can. Basically, beginning in 2019, Universal Music Group's catalog company, uh, uh, UME, created new animated music videos for some of their most beloved and quote-unquote iconic Christmas songs. These songs, due to their vintage, had never had a music video created for them previously. UME worked with either these aging artists or their estates, and then they hired different production companies to craft these new animated music videos. So in 2019, these were the first eight songs they, they did videos for. Sinatra's Jingle Bells, originally released in 48, and that was produced by Fantunes. Bobby Helms's Jingle Bell Rock, originally released in 57 and done by Ingenuity Studios. Brenda Lee's Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree, released in 58, also Ingenuity Studios. Dean Martin's Let It Snow, Let It Snow, Let It Snow <laughs> from 1959, also by Fantoons. Burl Ives's A Holly Jolly Christmas, 64, Ingenuity Studios. And then The Supremes' is My Favorite Things from 1965, produced by Ride or Cry. The Jackson 5's I Saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus, 1970, also Ride or Cry. And the eighth one was The Temptations' is Silent Night from 1970, also produced by Ride or Cry. Now, as a way to both break up these lists, because I'm sure you're not enjoying listening to that, and also to uh, to also show that I haven't quite done all my homework is that uh, for this current year, and I don't want to date the podcast too much, but I don't have the absolute latest greatest. I don't know whether they've continued this strategy this year. But what I can say is that after 2019 and basically in the middle of the pandemic, 
this strategy was repeated and expanded to 10 songs uh, for the Christmas, uh, Christmas pandemic release. So these songs were Bing Crosby's White Christmas, originally 42, also produced by Fantunes. Crosby's, and I'm going to screw this up, Mele Kalikimaka, I believe, <laughs> 1950, also Fantunes. Sinatra's The Christmas Waltz, 54, Fantunes. Sinatra's Mistletoe and Holly, 57, Fantunes. A personal favorite of mine, and we'll probably talk about this a little bit later, Chuck Berry's Run Rudolph Run from 58, also Fantunes. Ella Fitzgerald's Frosty the Snowman, 1960s Fantunes. Nat King Cole's The Christmas Song from 61, also Fantunes. Crosby's Winter Wonderland, 62, Fantunes. Another personal favorite of mine, the Beach Boys' Little St. Nick, 63 Fantunes, and the 10th and final one, Peggy Lee's Happy Holiday, 65, and a different studio, Blue Blue Studios produced that one. Now, this is where you get to stop listening to me, and we'll get to uh, invite in and welcome back the one and only Steve Voorhees, but I just want to end this part by saying that Honestly, there is neither a mystery nor honestly an interesting conversation to be had if we just simply ask, why did Universal Music do this? We all know because we could probably figure it out, but also they said it. They just felt it was a smart way to promote and market their existing catalog in a new, fun way. So, where I hope to go with this conversation, and of course, Steve could blow this out of the water, and I, I hope he does, because it's be fun to mix it up with him. But it's really to talk about that relationship between visuals and music, the ideas of memory and history, and to view it all with Steve through that sort of lens of retextualization or recontextualization. So I think I'm done with this boring monologue, Steve. Uh, so I'm just going to say... Welcome back to uh, your podcast, Inside the Box TV History Podcast. We've missed you. It's great to have you back, especially for this holiday episode. So, uh, I don't know. What say you, sir? Well, thank you. I'm happy to be back. I, uh, I'm i going to end my run as Chuck Cunningham here, where I went out to play basketball three years ago and I never came back. <laughs> so, I'm happy to be back. Uh, a little thing called the dissertation uh, kept me preoccupied. And full-time job. R R and parenthood. R.I.P. Chuck. That actor just passed away. Oh, he did? Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah, he really wow. he really went missing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm not gonna not gonna go there. Uh, poor Chuck. He uh, what was it, second season of Happy Days? I think he uh, I don't know. He, he left after that, but um, yeah, I'm happy to be back and to do this and uh, looking forward to uh, working with you. I don't remember the last episode we were on together. Was it Black's Magic? <laughs> I hope it's Black's Magic, but I think it might. It's either Black's Magic. <laughs> with Hal Linden? Say again. It was with uh, Hal Linden and uh, Harry Morgan, yes. right? One of the one of the most ridiculous shows we've ever talked about. And I didn't ask Steve to do this, but I will do this. And you're sick of hearing me do this, but I'll plug the Patreon archive. You can listen to that episode of Black's Magic with Steve and I. And um it was either that or the USA Network episode. I can't quite remember. We'll have to we'll have to look back. Oh, that. Well, I know the USA Network was the last time the three of us with Andrew were all together. Oh. I think you and I had a couple of duo episodes, and then That's I know right. Andrew and I. My last appearance was with Andrew. We interviewed Ken Esten, 
that um, which was a great episode. Now, folks, audience, I know you're like, just get on to this topic for Christ's sakes. But I just want to say, and I wasn't a part of that episode, and maybe that's telling us something. That is easily one of our most popular episodes in the archive is the Ken Eston two-parter interview. It's crazy. Like it's you got the analytics for that? Oh, I got it. I'm not gonna share it. I'm not gonna share it on air, but I'll you and I offline, I'll share it with you. But I'm serious. That is like up there with the um Kiss Halloween episodes and the Star Wars holiday specials and all that. Like they love that episode, so congrats. Monkeys, monkeys 30, 33 in the third revolutions. That's another weird favorite of yours, yeah. <laughs> it is a favorite of mine. That was great. Um, I really like these getting to the taste topic, yeah. the music videos. I'm really happy you shared this with me because I was unaware that Universal was doing this. And I do think it's extremely interesting that here we have these holiday staples, these standards that have been around for more than half a century, some of them almost 70 years now. And I think it's pretty clear Universal's just trying to keep them relevant and, and finding new audiences. Um, radio stations are not being listened to as much uh, when we think about connectivity in cars and smart devices. You know, how much does the AM, FM radio really get played that much? And I'm talking to that key demo, that 18 to 49 demo that media covets so much. So when you think about where they spend their time with media, uh, it's going to be on the YouTubes, right, or the iHeartRadio apps. or um, And the thing about those radio apps is, you know, how often are students seeking out particular songs? Maybe they'll do Christmas, but they want more of a contemporary Christmas. So Universal clearly just wanted to bring this into the contemporary time period, make it relevant, and I think really rebrand it. And that's that um, textualization that you're talking about of, you know, recontextualizing it in a way that, uh, makes this current. I mean, is it the music that's old or is it the people who sang the music that are old? Because I, I think if if young people are just um, dismissing things that were from 70 years ago, saying, well, that's old, that's not relevant. Um, Universal certainly, you know, having Chuck Berry, you know, fly through the sky with the with Santa's reindeer in a uh, what was that like a Cadillac sleigh or something? Yeah. But... See, for those who haven't, uh, who, those who haven't seen the video, and we'll we'll uh, link it to the uh, episode, uh, the episode uh, website. But the concept for the Chuck Berry video is it's very much in tune with how popular comic book uh, based movies are these days. So they they enter the world, they they set up the world for Chuck to basically be some sort of like superhero slash Santa Claus. And so what Steve's talking about is we see Chuck in a Santa suit with his guitar and he's in like the Cadillac, but the Cadillac of course is driven by the reindeer and he's sort of zooming around the skies of like a major metropolitan city. And it's a lot of fun. It's, it's just, it's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I, I mean, I would qualify that uh, in all of these videos as caricatures. Um, just the exaggeration of certain attributes of these characters uh, and bringing them into um, a different light that, you know, an 18-year-old is probably not going to know Chuck Berry. I'm sure some do, but I'm going to say majority do not know who Chuck Berry is. So suddenly Chuck Berry is, is not a 50s doo-wop singer. 
uh, or a rock and roll singer, but rather Chuck Berry is on the front of this comic book. Yeah. And it's a, you know, it takes place at Christmas time and there's this run, run Rudolph. And they didn't, to my knowledge, other than digitally remastering, they have not changed the songs. These are still the original tunes as they were sung and performed back in the 1950s. But now these visuals just make them look so much more hip and cool and relevant and new. And when you have that on YouTube and you find that, uh, to me, it, it changes the game. It, it totally makes Chuck Berry very different in the eyes of, as you said, Jonathan, someone who is not familiar with his work uh, than maybe you know someone who's much older. But it plays to both audiences. I mean, it's a smart move by Universal. Yeah, I just want to I just want to bring up two points before I forget them, and we don't have to get bogged down in them. But one, if you don't know or haven't been paying attention or don't care or whatever. And I forget his name. I, I think it's Bruce. Start, his first name is Bruce. And I, I'm, his last name is is, um, is escaping my mind right now. But basically, the guy who runs uh, the catalog division of Universal, they have been very aggressively buying up uh, catalogs from uh, artists and artist estates, and they're really sort of cornering that market. Now, me as sort of the cynic against some of these big corporate moves. This is one of the few times I'm actually sort of okay with it because they do such a good job with it. It's it's basically like kind of when when Rhino would take such nice deliberate care with repackaging and reissuing things and whatever. Like they do it in a smart a smart good way. So that's the first thing. So it's not surprising that they would take on a project like this because they they do it all the time and they do it well. The second issue that I wanted to bring up is you didn't say this directly, but and I don't know if you've had this experience with your undergraduates. But one of the few negatives with our students being so much more cognizant of social issues these days, whether it's misogyny, um, discrimination against uh, homosexuals, uh, gender issues, racism, et cetera, is the negative is they have a tendency to want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And so if I ever suggest something like, oh, hey, watch this, it's great. And then they realize, oh, you're talking about something from like, I'm making it up here, 1947, and it's in black and white. Their sort of spidey sense goes off and they're like, danger, danger, danger. This is going to be from a bad time. I don't, there's nothing good here. So I think you're right in the sense of even if there are visuals associated with uh, Sinatra, Bing Crosby, Chuck Berry, whoever, it's often black and white and that might that this this is a strategy to kind of get beyond those preconceptions of this is from an old time um i should stay away yeah but that's the other thing too i wonder if younger audiences even identify that the chuck berry or the frank sinatra or the dean martin these caricatures that we see drawn on the screen we, we can see Sinatra in his hat and I can just tell you, oh, that's a cartoon of Frank Sinatra, right? Because they're, they're again, they're, they're playing up certain attributes that we associate with their character and their appearance as we saw it in, in front of the camera. However, you know, do students or, or young folks, do they even realize that this drawing is actually, it resembles or closely resembles the person? And I don't know if that's the case. They may just think it's a random drawing in the cartoon that went with this because I think most of us, and I'm talking for younger folks here, they they will have heard these songs before somewhere in a store, on the radio, um, just anywhere. They've probably heard Frank Sinatra singing Jingle Bells at some point in their life. It's just everywhere in the media. 
but they never but maybe they never put a face to the to the name or never put a face to the to the voice rather so i'm wondering you know what kind of connection that is these are so open to interpretation that it's kind of fascinating to me that it's putting visuals to a song and i don't know if they realize that these are pretty you know pretty accurate drawings that when you watch these music videos you know i can i can tell that you know the it's the temptations or yeah. it's um, you know, any of the artists that they've featured. So Ella Fitzgerald was another one that they did really well on. So I just think that's really interesting. Um, and this is a type of thing that it just, it depends on your knowledge. I think it's kind of like the family guy uh, and SpongeBob scenarios where there's certain jokes that if you're of a certain generation, you'll get that joke on family guy and other generations will just gloss right over it because they have no idea what's going on. Um, but it doesn't take away from the meaning of the show, right? It's 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 something that they just embed throughout, and it's part of that interpretation process. Yeah, and I I think something that caught my my attention was, and I don't see this as a negative thing because you know obviously there's a better understanding there from uh, those fans, but I feel like they deliberately went with a different production house for some of the uh, late '60s, early '70s African American pop groups. So. Um, and, and what's interesting there, going to your idea of segmented audience, you know, like some audiences are going to pick up on certain iconography, others are going to be ignorant toward it. But uh, I believe it's the Jackson 5 song, but it may be the other one as well, is that to me has a much more direct appeal of family-based nostalgia. Like I feel like that is for someone like us, uh, I won't give our ages, but let's say we're, we're sort of approaching middle age, kind of, sort of. If the version of us who is African-American, they're setting up very deliberate family-based scenarios that are to pull on those nostalgic heartstrings from their own childhood of hearing this music, of waiting for Christmas morning or whatever, and now wanting to share those same moments with their own children through this sort of hip, like you said, like kind of this hip reimagining these caricatures, et cetera. So I just thought that was interesting. Like you're saying, some of it seems very directly like you know this, you remember this, let's class it up a little bit, let's polish it off a little bit. And then others, it's like, yeah, some of it, you, you they wouldn't even understand this reference, but like, do you remember the cartoon Dexter's Laboratory on Cartoon Network? Sure. Very sort of 60s inspired sort of minimalist animation. Yeah. Like some, I think it's like the Brenda Lee video. Some of it is very much inspired by that. So some, I think some people would look at that and go, oh yeah, that's kind of the color palette and the fonts that you would see in the 1960s. But like you're saying, some of your students or even their younger siblings might be like, I don't know, this is just a cool looking retro, retro in a general sense, cartoon, you know, and they, they miss that. Yeah, I would actually be interested in knowing that um, the artists that these studios employ to see if any of them had previously worked on Dexter's Laboratory or worked mm -hmm. in other cartoons that we recognize because um, one of the things I noticed, I, I brought up SpongeBob a few minutes ago, and there's a PBS show called Let's Go Luna. Oh, yeah. And a lot of the same characters uh, are drawn in the same style. And of course, looking through the credits, you realize, oh, a lot of the same animators are working on this. So you can pick up styles and just realize that some of that carries over from the previous work into the things that they're working on. The one thing about these music videos I just want to touch upon is also it's not all animation. There are some live action yes. filming shots that have gone in uh, mostly in the beginning. I've seen some interstitials and I really liked how they played up the stereotypical retro 
uh, icons, I guess you could say, um, where you might see a room with wood paneling or a room where there's beads in the door and a very simple tree with garland, uh, something that you might identify as, oh, that that looks very 1970-ish or um, depending on the age that you grew up in, 1960-ish. Uh, and yet the, per the people in these videos are very contemporary looking, um, you know, not dressing in a leisure suit or, <laughs> you know, something that would that we would associate with being out of style. And so I thought that was kind of a, an interesting play that they, you know that the retro, you could find that in the cartoon, but then this kind of cemented the deal. The way it was shot, uh, some of these live action sequences, they're clearly playing up uh, certain uh, visual uh, points that you just know this is not quite in style. People don't have wood paneled dens, right. uh, at least not not being installed today, maybe left over from 30 years <laughs> ago. But I, I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, and, and and getting into that that idea of the older audience member where the nostalgia or the recontextualization of that nostalgia in very particular ways is going to work. And, and I'll try not to get too hung up on this because otherwise this is going to turn into a conversation that you're not interested in. Most of the fans are not interested, the listeners. But uh, I forget if I've talked about this on the show or not, but very much later in, I guess as an adult, I definitely went through a heavy phase of getting into Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys stuff. And like a lot of people, you go, okay, yeah, Beach Boys, very white bread. Um, you know, the derisive folks would say, um, this is just sort of souped up barbershop quartet stuff. Who cares? Vocal harmonies, whatever. But if you if you sort of look at their late 60s, early 70s stuff, they actually go through some really interesting periods that, uh, uh, well, the songs are just, are, are just interesting. And they're still very, very good, but just in a different way. Anywho. And then you start to realize like just how much of a genius Brian Wilson is and all this stuff. Anyway, so I feel like I have a, a fair a fair understanding of their career, not an expert by any stretch of the imagination, but a fair understanding. And at least in the popular imagination, they're split between those two interests, right? Which is when they were kids, right? When they were popular, they love to surf and they love cars. And so we have this really wonderful... Um, or at least in my opinion, very wonderful Christmas song that was very successful for them, Little St. Nick. And to me, and, and again, I'm not an expert, some fan, some fanatic who's listening will go, actually, Jonathan, you're totally wrong on this, and here's why. Okay, fine. But for me, Little St. Nick was one of their car songs, you know, son of the idea of a souped-up sleigh, you know, Santa's Santa's doing it, right? And it's a it's winter, it's it's Christmas. But if you watch the chosen recontextualized uh, Little St. Nick video, it's all about at the beach and it's all surfing. And it just doesn't make any sense to me. It's Santa like, you know, greased up like a, like a Hawaiian surfer and them helping Santa and all that. And I don't know, I, again, I'm being, I, I'm kind of getting stuck in the weeds here, but in my mind, other than the idea that, Oh, beach boys beach, it makes no sense to me. Like, I don't know why it's not a winter kind of like Chuck, right? Chuck's sort of over the city during Christmas time. I don't know why it's not uh, the Beach Boys helping Santa, although maybe the concepts would just be too similar to Chuck Berry. I don't know. So now that I bored you with that detail, I'll shut up. <laughs> Uh, 
that I uh, for little Saint Nick, I don't think that's the way Charles Manson intended it when he wrote that song, right? <laughs> yeah, Steve is referencing the fact that uh, often troubled Beach Boy Dennis Wilson uh, had a brief uh, friendship with uh, with old Charlie, and uh, Charlie always fashion- fancied himself a, a songwriter. As far as I know, I, yeah, D- Charles Manson did not write Little Saint Nick. I don't want to get uh, caught up in that. Um, I will say this. I, I look, uh, I've been on YouTube looking at some of these videos, and I am amazed at the number of views that they get. So I, I found Dominic the Donkey, uh, you know, from Lou Monte, and they, they did a music animated video for it. 4.3 million views. Um, people are watching these, and uh, you can find some other uh, just regular Christmas music videos. Um, they all seem to have very high numbers, but these animated ones that just came out, um, you know, right, right between 2018 and, uh, tw- you know, 2020, 2021, they're all getting millions of views. And so I think when you, when you enter into the um, YouTube sphere of just people going down that rabbit hole and finding one video after another, that uh, people are enjoying these. Well, that's, that's what I sort of was going to ask you before one thing, and I'll, I'll add a second point onto this. So first, I just I wonder whether such a thing as throwing a party and sort of throwing the television on as a playlist in the background or connecting your computer up to the big screen and just running a YouTube playlist at parties is still a thing. I honestly don't know. I'm not in that in that mindset, but I know back in the day it was sort of what we would do. You know, you just sort of let it roll. During the age of COVID, I'm not having. I, any I know, I understand, but that's that's one possible. <laughs> I, you know, that's one explanation for those numbers, right? It could be a background Christmas party kind of thing. I stay up late by myself and just listen to YouTube videos. That's okay. All I do. So now, 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 Grandpa Voorhees. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go back to your students and. This goes back to something you mentioned in the beginning about, you know, do they really know these artists? Don't they know these artists? And I guess what I was also going to say, you know, how it does paper over the more problematic issues of artists like IE Chuck Berry later in life and all the shenanigans he got up to, you know, this sort of reclaims him as a sort of, you know, king of rock and roll, sort of him at his best and all that stuff. But I mean, I, I, I haven't looked this up. I don't know. Maybe they're already doing this. But do you think this strategy should be adopted or could be adopted instead of for us and our crowd on YouTube, but for the younger generation who is currently glued to TikTok? Like, should they shorten these somehow? Should they sort of boil down the essence even more to just like the the bear? Like, the, here's the hook or here's, like you said, here's Sinatra's hat. Like, do you think there's a market there for, or, or should it just be a Spotify recommendation? Like what are your, I mean, again, we could probably figure this out online. Like if we do enough research, I'm being a little lazy here, but what do you think? Or is it too, or is that too much of a disconnect? Does this sort of just live in YouTube? I think it depends on what universal wants to do with these songs. Um, you know, one thing they did not do in these music videos is alter the song that if you, listen to these music videos it sounds like you're listening to the song on the, on the radio station they they have not done anything to the music once you get into tiktok and other formats you know you then you're you're chopping these songs up you're taking you know hooks from them um you know and just kind of playing up certain um you know the certain 
points, I guess, of interest, uh, whether that be visual or audible. So that I think that's different, and that that really depends on how Universal plans to market these. I I liken it to to commercials. Um, my my kids are, are you know under the age of ten. They will you know hear a popular song that's on a commercial, and they'll say, "Oh, I really love this song," and they call it the name of the product, <laughs> and they just associate the product with the yeah. song. And I'm saying, you know, kids, when I was a when I was a kid, this. There, there's a there's a long version. It's about three minutes long, not the 20 second version you just saw on the commercial break. So I, I think it would kind of go along the lines of that. If you're, you know, once you get into that commercialization, what the song is being used for. Um, but, you know, on TikTok, that's a whole nother audience that they could potentially tap into. But where do they want them to go after that? Uh, access the whole song, um, you know, or is this just something to keep the song and keep the music relevant? And maybe they're just trying to do that so they can market the song to commercial advertisers, uh, because of course the advertiser is going to say, you know, does this song resonate with an audience that we're trying to sell a product to? And now Universal can say, yeah, look at what we've done with this music. So I, I don't know. Um, you know, the song has been detached from the artist. The artist has passed away. Their their estate may have a, a bit of a stake in the song, but this is. This is the same thing that Tom Petty has fought and, um, you know, Taylor Swift just went through and fighting to get her music back. The record company owns it. The record company can do what they want with it. And the artist doesn't really have that much of a say, uh, depending on how, the, you know, the contracts are structured. And especially going back 70 years, you would imagine the record company owns all of it. And there's very little residual that goes to the uh, family's estate. Yeah. But, um, yeah, that's that's when you really start getting deep in the weeds of ownership. Yeah, and I think I think it's interesting. I, I still feel like it was I forget if it was YouTube or Instagram, but I feel like last year there was that uh, that video that went viral where the guy has he was about our age, his truck broke down and so he had a skateboard the rest of the way to work and so he was lip-syncing to Fleetwood Mac and that's what introduced Fleetwood yep. Mac to younger generation and then of course their back catalog started moving a bit for those next few days. So I guess it's like you're saying you could potentially go for that kind of strategy on a TikTok or Instagram, but it does sort of change the fundamental nature of you're not just running the full three and a half minutes or two, two minute, 15 seconds of the song. You are, you're sort of slicing and dicing it. And, and, and again, like we were talking about up, up top, uh, recontextualizing it uh, in a sense. So, yeah. I mean, that was like the Fred Astaire with the vacuum cleaner too, right? <laughs> Using Fred Astaire's likeness to sell a vacuum cleaner. And you know, he, he's dead. He doesn't have a say on how his likeness is to be used. And, and, that, and that was a while ago, right? That was late the late 90s, 90s yeah. I think, or early 2000s. Yeah. yeah. And so you know, now it's even so much more you can do with, uh, with technology. All right. So I think I want to get kind of close to the finish line here with one last area. And that is, I'll give it, I'll give you a choice, Steve. You can either, we can either talk about what current or more recent videos or songs do you feel need this treatment down the road? We could go down that road or we can talk about how long do you feel time needs to pass before we can start papering over the p more problematic uh, areas of an artist's life and re like you said, turn them into a caricature or re you know, reanimate them or whatever. So now they become sort of okay again uh, for consumption. Uh, those are two admittedly difficult questions, but I thought it might be fun. We can choose one of those to kind of go out on either 
you know, what, what's the new crop going to be down the road or how long, how much time must pass before we can sort of resell these more problematic artists? Well, I'll, I'll take the first question because I think that's an easy answer. And that is, there's not much left to do with this because music videos were just not created for many of these songs that they're creating it for. And holiday is such a niche uh, that you can, it's it's a niche commercial holiday. I mean, this is the time to be selling stuff and you're going to hear these songs. So, I mean, it just makes sense and no music video existed. Going forward, I, I don't think they're going to take a Mariah Carey All I Want for Christmas and have to animate it because that video already exists. There's tons of iterations of it. Mariah doing it live, Mariah doing it officially the first time music video and then recreations. And uh, there's just not going to be a need unless they're trying to market something. I don't see the need to animate this stuff. So unless it's coming from the way, way past when there was no visual medium to be able to do this or to do a live performance recording, animation seems like the way to go. But I just don't see any, any more of the more modern, what we would call modern day recordings having to be redone as an animation. Uh, unless they're digitally remastering, you know, like Bruce Springsteen's one of Bruce Springsteen's hits from the seventies. And Bruce Springsteen is like 30 years from now, very old or maybe not with us. And then they're like, well, we got to animate them in order to do it. I mean, there's, there's a have to be a purpose I would imagine. Cause otherwise I don't really see too much of a point in that. Does that yeah, make no, sense? Absolutely. I, I, I do think that they always want to save money, but I think you're more optimistic than I am in the sense of I, the cynic in my heart is like, if there is a way to make money, if there's a per, like you said, like we got to reissue this, we got to make something seem old, seem new again. I could see them maybe investing the money, but I will say, and and again, you don't have to answer this because you chose, you chose your question, but just answer my own question. I only get one choice. No, I I don't (laughs) want to put you on a spot because I didn't, I didn't prep you for this. I just sort of sprung this on you, but you know, I, I think down the road, and maybe it's already happening, but I feel like we'll see this kind of treatment in a non-holiday fashion for like some of the work of Michael Jackson. Uh, even though he is known so much known as a video artist, I could see sort of remix and remastering and new animated versions of him so that we get over or beyond and maybe this will become a fight, right? A, a sort of a, a collective memory fight over fans who are like, no, like, yes, he was problematic because he was a pedophile, but how he looked or chose to look is not problematic at all, right? Like he, like, he should be embraced like that versus the other forces who are like, no, the most sellable, you know, version of Michael Jackson is 1979 Michael Jackson or 1982 Michael Jackson or whatever. So, and then the other example, and I don't, I, I, I mean, I don't want to, and I, Lord knows I don't know a whole lot myself, although I'm guessing I might know just a tiny bit more than you, but like another example would be R. Kelly, you know, like his music is fantastic, a lot of fun to dance to and all that stuff, but very problematic these days based on, you know, what we've learned about his personal life. I could see someone down the road going, man, this song is great. Like, I really want to be able to sell this song to a new generation if we can get beyond the idea of sort of who he is in his personal life, et cetera. So Again, you don't have to answer any of that. I didn't expect to go this direction, but it's just something that was because for me, it's all about sort of who controls the history, how do we embrace the memory, how do we resell it, and all that stuff. So that it just gets us into that into that uh, into that area. Yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, I think the animation disconnects the person from 
the music video in, in your examples, a music video already exists. So you got to get that. You got to get rid of the visual. You're left with just a song. And now you are where a 1940s song would be. You have no visual. And yet you have all these platforms like YouTube that are very visual. So you have to attach a new visual to it to recontextualize it. Yeah. That makes perfect sense then to go the route of animation. Okay. So I think we have... Um, uh, uh, entertained, let's be positive, entertained the audience more than enough during this episode. Uh, so here at the finish line, and this is also obviously a holiday episode, um, anything that you want to sort of add in or plug or promote or talk about? Because this is, again, this is uh, this episode's about the end of December-ish after a long year of some stuff. Uh, anything you want to kind of leave us with Steve or mention or talk about, or are you good? No, I'm just happy to get out of the box. Uh, <laughs> um, actually this is inside yes. the box, but I was able to get out of the batter's box today and at least trot down to yes. first base. And I, I hope I arrived safely that this was uh, three years in the making. So it's been a while for me. So thanks for, uh, indulging me as I shake the yeah, rest off. And I will, I will just say what is obvious for the listeners who've stayed with us during this holiday season. And that is as much as I love doing episodes. And obviously, as we mentioned before with the, uh, the Ken Eston uh, interview show, which was just Steve and Andrew, sometimes we really do hit it out of the park uh, solo or duo or whatever, but uh, it's, it's much more fun, at least for me, uh, when we can kind of mix it up like this. So I'm personally very appreciative this holiday season that Steve could give us the gift, if you will, of uh, finding some time to come back on the ship. And uh, that's uh, that's been that's been fun, a real big fun part of this season. And we're not going to promise you when we're coming back. You know, maybe it will be next year. Maybe it'll be another limited season. I don't know. I can't promise you anything. But if we do do it, keep looking for us here in the main feed um, cause we we're probably gonna have a lot more fun, uh, but, but we can't promise you, promise you when or where, uh, cause life always intervenes. So with that, for that, I want to say thanks for listening. I hope you do enjoy the holidays, not to date this podcast. You can listen to this podcast when it's not the holidays, but we recorded it during and released it during the holiday season. So, and it's been, it's fun to be able to say this for the first time in what, three years for Steve Voorhees. I'm Jonathan Bollinger. This is Inside the Box TV History Podcast. Thanks for listening. We will catch you next time. Bye-bye. The following program is brought to you in living color. As early as 1923, David Sarnoff recognized the possibility...